How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Hello and welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm here with Glenn Coltard, author of Red Skin, White Masks, Rejecting the Colonial Politics of Recognition. Glenn, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So, Glenn, uh, the title of your book, Red Skin, White Masks. So, immediately, I think of Fanon, Black Skin, White Masks. And maybe you can talk about how you use Fanon and his ideas in the book. Yeah, my use of Fanon is not, I guess, without controversy because um, a lot of Fanon scholarship has really kind of focused on the question of use and misuse. Um, kind of, or uh, Said's famous kind of intervention with like how how well do theories travel from one um, context to another, from one time to another. So I don't really take up those questions. I just use Fanon's uh, kind of theoretical framework and the bulk of his work, not just either or, like uh, his early or late work, in order to make sense of um, some of the dynamics that shape um, Indigenous people's colonial experiences here in Canada. Um, But if I were to go back and kind of justify my use of Fanon, I'd probably tell a larger, like, history of, uh, intellectual history of radical struggle in Canada, um, of which uh, Fanon is really centrally located in those. So... um, like I was discussing in the class I'm teaching here um, at, at the HM uh, conference, uh, Fanon was being invoked like in the 1960s and 70s uh, by white Quebec separatists, uh, kind of a theoretical influence on the, on the FLQ, uh, theoretical influence on people like uh, um, Pierre Vallier. Um, um, so he was really kind of been taken up by Quebec separatists um, in, a, in an order to kind of, uh, in their bid for self-determination, they pitch themselves as a colonized people, mm-hmm. not unlike the wretched of the earth that Fanon depicts in his work. Um, at the same time, you have people, none other than like Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who is using Fanon in order to critique the separatists. So in an important 1964 essay, he writes... Uh, um, What's it called? Um, separatist counter-revolutionaries. He invokes Fanon, uh, claiming that the the separatists only read his first chapter on violence and don't go on in the book to, uh, and this is wretched of the earth to kind of uh, his critique of of nationalisms. Um, so you have like these two kind of uh, stuck in this federalist sort of separatist uh, binary. Um, in defense of their own like colonial state projects, invoking yeah. <laughs> invoking this kind of anti-colonial theorist um, for their for their two radically different uh, different positions, and in doing so, effacing or you're totally erasing indigenous struggles. So you also have uh, people in the '60s and '70s like Howard Adams, like a Métis Marxist historian, who uh, really kind of applies a Fanonian uh, lens to his understanding of of the native state relationship. Yeah, Fanon being read by Lee Miracle, um, um, now through a Maoist sort of lens, 
uh, Maoist slash Red Power Lens in their work with uh, uh, Native um, Alliance for Red Power in the 70s. Mm. So there's this long history of Fanon being evoked in Canada, which I don't really talk about in the book, but it's really fascinating. So. And Fanon explicitly used the language of native and settler. Mm -hmm. So, And he's talking about Algeria, which was a settler colonial project. And so uh, in, in many ways it makes more sense uh, to think about it in the indigenous context than in, say, the the Quebec context. Oh, for sure. I think that the the interpretation or use of Fanon is a, like a, a blatant misuse when it comes to um, the defense of their state projects, whether it be Quebec or Canada. And then you, and once you hit Howard Adams and, and kind of the red power articulations of it, including my own people, the Dene were reading Fanon and mm. Memi and Cesar and others during the 70s as well. Um, you get a more believable or less problematic um, kind of engagement with Fanon's ideas than you do with Quebec. And this is part of a part of a global movement and use of Fanon, right? I mean, beyond Africa, uh, you know, I, one of my heroes that I mention a lot uh, in my writing is Akbal Ahmed, who was a Pakistani mm -hmm. campaigner against the Vietnam War in the States, and he was a um, he was a real fan of Fanon's work and mm -hmm. also worked in Algeria. And so the idea that there's this, you know, set of revolutionary ideas that need to be adapted and can be used in different contexts, I think is one of the one of the things that I see in your in your book um, come through. And it's not just Fanon, it's also Marx. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk about Marx because, uh, you know, I read Ward Churchill's Marxism and Native Americans and he's got a real critique of Marx. Uh, and you have a critique of Marx, but it's a little bit of a different um, take on it, maybe? Yeah, I think part of my engagement with Marx um, was an engagement in the way that Fanon and Sartre were kind of, mm -hmm. they were constantly trying to kind of convince um, the French, particularly uh, the French left, mm -hmm. of, uh, of of the importance for anti-colonial struggles. So, yeah. so there's been at times a kind of a hostile relationship between um, the Marxist left and indigenous struggles. So I kind of wanted to put these these two kind of critical traditions into conversation in order to facilitate a like a like a at least theoretically pave the ground for a more robust solidarity in anti-colonial politics. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of the, uh, the outward project, was not a reconciliation, but a kind of just a, a more productive conversation. And then the internal project, as I think that um, in our focus on land struggles, struggles over land and the exploitation of resources, we've been conditioned over time uh, to pay less attention to the exploitation of bodies and labor. Mm. So I wanted, I wanted that aspect from us to learn as well, or kind of keep on our, 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 our uh, within our like horizons a, a, uh, a concern over kind of class politics that's emerging in, in indigenous societies. So, mm. so I wanted the Marxists to learn about uh, land and its importance, and I kind of wanted our people to kind of place into our frameworks um, a concern over bodies and exploitation of, of labor. 
the, you know, I come at this, like, people who listen to this are probably interested in the politics of international solidarity, of solidarity with the Palestinian struggle, or even Latin America. Uh, and I've had this experience working in these things where I thought, I, I keep returning to the idea that, you know, here in Canada, Canada is the problem, and Canada is the thing that we need to mm-hmm. be paying attention to. Uh, and that was another reason why I was so excited to read your work. Um, but it's one thing that there's so many things that come up in terms of the discourse, and one of them is always this idea that it's like um, local corruption, or like, yeah. you know, it's like the Haitian elite or the Palestinian elites that are you know corrupt. And I I see that same kind of discourse uh, about. Uh, indigenous people and I just um, when you talk about like an internal there's like an internal and an external uh, dimension to these things mm-hmm. so like how, how do you see the the, the role of uh, a political activism or political discourse in trying to challenge the effects that it has within a community and in how a community is perceived from the outside yeah, that's a tough one because I think um, for like where these criticisms and alliances are coming from is important. Yeah. So like it's I feel like obligated to challenge yeah. um, injustices not only from without but from within. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking about kind of our like solidarity work for non-indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. um, that becomes problematic. Like yeah. you should be more focused on on that critique of um, dominant institutions and, and less so on yeah. on the uh, on some of the ways that those institutions has, have impacted indigenous peoples and therefore yeah. reproduced um, these problematic power relations within our own community. Yeah. Partially because when, um, when non-indigenous people say it, and particularly when white people say it, mm-hmm. um, they're creating a form of representation that justifies a whole host of colonial sort of injustices. Yeah. Whether it's state intervention, or the taking away of our children, or the circ- circumscribing of our jurisdictions and laws. Um, so to avoid kind of... Um, participating in those structures of representation that enable dispossession and the kind of undermining of our legal authority over our territories. I mean, I find that fascinating because the, you know, I always think about like, is the, is the represent, does the representation precede what it is that the state wants to do or the, you know, elites want to do to these, to these communities or is it actually a rationalization after the fact or, um, but I'm sure it's, a well, it's process. definitely, I think, self-prophesizing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But, um, yeah, I don't know if that's all that important, a, a conversation. Like, the more, like, especially when it gets wrapped up in questions of intentionality and yeah. intent... Like, we don't have to demonstrate that no. there's some Illuminati that are kind yeah. of scheming in, their, in how they represent indigenous peoples in the media yeah. um, that will enable, like, the justification of them taking our land or resources. Um, it's great when you can, like, demonstrate that kind of yeah. intent because it, um, 
it's just important to do so, and sometimes it does exist, but yeah. the effects are nonetheless the same. So you inherit, yeah. as non-Indigenous peoples, um, responsibility for the effects that these are playing in our yeah. in our communities. Everything from premature death to like um, um, like pathological degrees of like incarceration and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So. Another another thing that I admire about the book is you're not. Um, I mean, you you were talking about these brutal and horrible realities just a second ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, incarceration and and uh, disproport like premature or like excess mortality mm-hmm. uh, and and suicide rates and, and all of these di- yeah ma- murder and, and disappearances of, of uh, indigenous women and girls. It but. One thing that I, I like about your book is that you're also you're also taking on some of the harder targets, like what's wrong with reconciliation? Yeah. What's wrong with seeking recognition? And so maybe if you wouldn't mind kind of going into the, a few of those arguments. Well, the idea is that there's a particularly liberal um, colonialism at work here. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on, because of indigenous people's struggles for self-determination have been forced to modify how, how land is acquired and sovereignty is undermined. So you see a transition kind of emerge in the post-war period, kind of beginning roughly with changes to the Indian Act in 1951, but then really sort of consolidating itself in the 70s after the resistance to the White Paper, which was an assimilation document by the first Trudeau and uh, Jean Chrétien as Minister of Indian Affairs. And it became evident that you could no longer deny recognizing that indigenous peoples had certain rights that Canadians don't have, um, whether it be to land as enshrined in treaty or, or what have you. Um, but this, the object of settler colonialism being the acquisition of, of land and territories for capitalist accumulation and settlement was still was still well in place. They just were forced to get to it in a different way. And the book argues that they do that through this new turn towards recognition of rights rather than denying them. Um, but in doing so, they can only recognize um, indigenous difference and the rights associated with them um, in ways that further the colonial project of, of dispossession and settlement for purposes of accumulation. So there's a contradiction between the political economy of the country, which is based on a model of taking resources and turning them into profits, Mm -hmm. and the recognition of the people that actually have rights to those territories. So that's what modern day, like from the state's perspective and in the courts, that's what their definition of reconciliation is. Trying to reconcile. Reconcile indigenous presence with the kind of unilateral assumption of uh, state sovereignty and all that entails. And so, it's, uh, so in that way, I would say that reconciliation is a reconciliation with colonialism um, from as it's kind of um, articulated in, in the languages of the state. So if, so then in that, but the only... I mean, I don't want to say there's a real reconciliation beyond this, but if there was to be a real reconciliation, it would involve, it would have to involve a different model 
for the economy. Like, it couldn't involve the unilateral seizure of territories and extractive industries and... Yeah, I would recall, like, some folks out there uh, prefer words like restitution. Like, yeah. it would be like a reinstatement of indigenous jurisdictions over indigenous lands. And that is going to affect the economy. Yeah. Um, it, will, it will be a kind of a... It will be a, a blockage or some impediment on accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that sort of reconciliation, I, I, like if that's yeah. what we're talking, <coughs> talking about, sorry, when we're referring to reconciliation, I'm all for it. Also, reconciliation tends to kind of get understood individually as like healing, and I'm all for that. Reconciliation, like we need a better relationship with non-Indigenous Canadians. I'm all for that. What I'm not for is reconciliation as a, as kind of a new logic of dispossession. Yeah, and then it also becomes like a, oh, you don't want to reconcile. Well, that's on you now. It's, it it makes the it kind of inverts the the relationship and puts the problem onto Indigenous people for not taking this generous offer. Yeah, I have a chapter in the book that the particular way in which we're, like our refusal to forgive or reconcile um, um, tends to produce this understanding of indigenous peoples as being angry, resentful, unable to get over the past, as being entitled, always demanding special Special. rights and privileges over other hardworking Canadians. so the reconciliation literature actually depends, it kind of fuels off yeah. of that, this idea that, that indigenous peoples need to heal be, and, and thus move on with life. So it kind of uh, represents some sharp distinction between like an unju- un- unjust past and a just present, yeah. but with ha- which has this legacy that yeah. has wounded indigenous people. So reconciliation is really a project that aims at kind of repairing supposedly damaged individuals, yes. but not touching the Dam- structure of dispossession in the present. And you're damaged by the past. Yeah, you're, or the past. Damaged not, by, and so if you have a problem today. Yeah, and if you have a problem, it can't be with what's going on now, it has to be with something that happened in the past. But there's something else that you wrote about, I'm not sure if it was in the book or another paper, but the comparison to South Africa where, you know, we use this language of truth and reconciliation in Canada, but in South Africa that was after the end of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of doing a reconciliation while the territorial dispensation and the colonial situation remains in place seems a bit odd. It's not odd. I think it's <laughs> sinister. Yeah. yeah. Um, it plays a really important ideological function though. Yeah. Like yeah. you're separating um, the past from the present. Yeah. And uh, you're locating the kind of harms of colonialism, if it's even mentioned at all, mm-hmm. as something that we're now over. Yeah. Like, the only way that you can make sense of a transitional justice mechanism with a non-transitional um, context yeah. is by fabricating that, yeah. and like, drawing that line through history. So it, it plays a real kind of tricky ideological um, um, game that actually undermines Indigenous people's critique. Yeah. Because right? we become, 
were the unreasonable ones, yeah. um, as as painted in this and the kind of the representational structure of the reconciliation discourse. So, the law. I, I I was I was at the you had you had a public event um, as part of this that uh, was part of your visit uh, to Toronto uh, and you were with uh, Leanne Simpson and Jared Martineau Jared Martineau uh, and one of the things that uh, you were discussing was like the idea of Canada adopting the United Nations resolution on the rights of Indigenous peoples. And uh, Leanne Simpson said something like, I would like to think of it as a tool, but I think it's actually a trick. Mm -hmm. And the idea, you know, I think a lot of people think of the law uh, and some of these court decisions as potential tools, but in fact, I think they could be traps as well, potentially. Um, I think of it in two ways. It's just a structural problem as to like how how would Canada go about implementing a um, human rights kind of um, framework that is that would undermine some of its interests, like mm -hmm. especially if we take notions of free and informed consent seriously. Mm -hmm. So I was always curious when they made a stated commitment to. Um, to implement the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I was like, I wonder what the I wonder what the trick is here. Like, how are they going mm -hmm. to? Because it's against the settler yeah. kind of colonial political economy interests of yeah. the state. So, how are you going to do it? Because I know that recognition will only, following Fanon, yeah. be offered if it if it's reconcilable with the interests of the colonizer. And the way that they did it is they they said we will implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in a manner consistent with Canada's constitution, mm -hmm. which means in the Indigenous context, uh, in in um, as a framework of Section 35 rights. But we know through a history of kind of Aboriginal rights jurisprudence that that's not that's not absolute. Indigenous people's rights can be overrided or, un or infringed is the language that the, that the courts used. If it can be demonstrated um, that, that that infringement is for a public interest. And then following the Dalgamuk decision by the Supreme Court in 1997, a public interest um, can be any economic activity um, that is central to the uh, accumulation of capital and settlement for those aims. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay, I see how you uh, can square this human rights doctrine with the interests of settler colonial powers by embedding it in this asymmetrical legal relationship with Canada. And its so you have human rights except as they conflict with anything that yeah. we might want in the future. But it also, this is the, so that's the structural problem. You can just show that. You're yeah. like, oh, okay, your UN um, endorsement is one that's embedded within this colonial legal relationship. Uh, but it also appears to be an act of justice. And this has the kind of cathartic effect on um, making Canadians feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it has an impact on Indigenous peoples. We come to see this as, as a as a um, as a good thing we we yeah. we come to understand it as an act of justice too in right. very subtle and, and tricky ways yeah. um, that that blunts our 
like view of still the the relationship of subordination and the violence that it creates in our in our communities. Yeah. So, in terms of this moment in in history in this part of the world, um, there is a demographic and intellectual and political uh, resurgence of indigenous people going on. And I think that's, um, you know, one of the, like in terms of like scholars of the resurgence, you know, you're one of the, one of the people that uh, I definitely think of. Um, so I just, maybe we could talk a bit about that, the whole idea of a resurgence and what that means. Resurgence is a politics that is um, grounded in a critical engagement with our own like sources of knowledge and strength mm -hmm. and the practices that are kind of associated with that. So it's a cultural politics in a substantive sense, mm -hmm. um, but it's one that is not focused on asking for recognition, mm -hmm. um, but it's enacted through, through action, through praxis. Mm -hmm. So it's a deployment, a critical articulation an enactment of our, our, the best of our kind of cultural foundations in a way that's supposed to bring about the change that we're seeking. So it's prefigurative in that sort of way if you want to use kind of activist jargon. It is, um, it's, it's a politics of acting rather than of demanding recognition of our rights. And it's really oriented around, around direct action. It's about doing it rather than asking for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if we look at the history of, of kind of how change has been made in the relationship with Canada, um, it's always been, that's been the critical sort of momentum is, is through Indigenous people's assertion of their, of their nationhood on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not been a politics of recognition and negotiation around, the, around certain tables, whether they be land claims or self-government agreements. And, yeah, so the negotiation question is interesting because I've read a bunch of this kind of business or negotiation literature recently, and one of the things they talk about is a negotiation is ultimately a reflection of the power of the parties involved. And so if... Uh, in, uh, one one way of interpreting the idea of resurgence is that you're it's an attempt to build power uh, rather than continuously entering into a completely asymmetric negotiation in which the state can impose increasingly worse terms on. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's exactly right. Um, and to use the language of negotiation is actually uh, misleading because a negotiation assumes some sort of um, uh, power equivalency, um, which doesn't exist. The terms are dictated from the outside, and Indigenous peoples have to um, accept that. It's non-negotiable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so resurgence, instead of kind of putting all our efforts to affect change in those um, asymmetrical kind of sites of, of so-called negotiation, we just we're, we bring our concerns and demonstrate our concerns and enact our alternatives mm -hmm. um, at a more kind of grassroots nation-building level. So, as a matter of solidarity, is it like for people outside of indigenous communities? Is it a matter of? Um, 
being patient until there there are moments where indigenous uh, communities are in conflict and then intervening on the no, I think for non-indigenous peoples, a politics of solidarity would support whatever, mm-hmm. like at both sites. So, like sometimes we have to like at at some point we're going to have some sort of engagement mm-hmm. with like with the state where we're asking it to curtail its yeah. genocidal behavior. Yeah, and I would hope that we're supported in those efforts. Right. But we're also going to reach a point where the state will not, nor demonstrate its unwillingness or inability to respond to our demands, mm-hmm. and then we'll seek some sort of, we'll take our concerns um, in a more conflictual manner to the yeah. state itself. Right. And we also need support on those, yeah. um, whether it be like on the ground support or support helping our people get out of jail when, mm-hmm. when they come in. Um, where they're in the position that impedes state sovereignty or the flow of, of commodities from, from our land bases. So. This was an interesting point at the public event that you made as well, where you said there's a lot of people studying uh, jurisprudence of land claims, but maybe not enough people willing to work, not enough lawyers willing to work to defend people uh, who actually get arrested trying to defend the land. Um, yeah, no, we have a lot of indigenous and non-indigenous, like, aboriginal rights experts, yeah. like, who can understand um, the nuances of, of Section 35 and all of these sorts of things. Um, but I think we need criminal lawyers that, when those rights are, uh, are woefully neglected or not recognized, mm-hmm. and then we take our concerns to the logging roads and... and and out on the blockades, uh, we need, we don't like, you know, Aboriginal rights jurisprudence is gonna, yeah. isn't going to help the elders and, yeah. and women who are, who are being like sh- shipped off to jail because of their defense of their sovereignty. Um, so we need, we need people who will do that kind of frontline legal work. And I mean, in Ontario alone, I can think of uh, Amjuang or KI, like mm. lots of these places where people have been shipped off to jail exactly, as you yep. say. So Yeah, and ar- making an argument about Aboriginal title isn't going to do shit for those people. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. It's, they already know. Yeah. I mean, and the state knows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there was one other question that I thought I wanted to ask you that night. There were, you know, standing room only, there were hundreds of people, there were lots of questions, so I didn't want to... Uh, try to elbow my way into the queue, but, um, you know, you uh, are working as an academic, and you also work uh, as an educator, um, and so I think of that as a really long-term, those are like long-term kind of projects, it's a long-term kind of work, and I always think about the media, and I just wondered what your take was whether you think the media is just reflecting these longer-term things that you're working on, or whether there's, like, a, a really particularly important role uh, trying to work to challenge media depictions and, of, and media stories of, uh, you know, indigenous people of, the, of whatever conflicts do arise. Like mainstream media, I assume yeah, you're yeah, talking I mean, about. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the six corporations that... <laughs> That's a good question. I think um, I, I 
and this is not without controversy, but I think that the media, um, particularly as it pertains to indigenous peoples, are a reflection of the colonial kind of conditions and the material conditions of coloniality that we exist in. Mm -hmm. Um, At least when we're talking about the mainstream media. So as an educator, you're kind of like, you're making interventions into kind of the relationship between uh, representation and, and the violence of dispossession because it's enabled through a certain way of understanding indigenous peoples that serves to ideologically justify all the horror, horrific kind of um, uh, unequal sort of aspects of of our relationship and our existence within Canada. And I think the media more or less is is committed to, um, at least it has the effect of of rarely ever challenging those. And I think, like I was, uh, I don't know more was a really good example of how the media represented it. Um, You know, like a like a blatantly negligently uncritical sort of way. So you'd have the federal government purposefully leak financial. Yeah. Um, corruption. Um, records. Corruption. corruption, yeah, yeah. quote, corruption yeah. of Ottawapiskat. And then the media, like, just fell in line. Like, it served a kind of function um, to discredit the claims of, of Theresa Spence and the treaty rights that, that she was advocating for. And I used to, I got in a fight with a couple of folks from mainstream outlets. I'm like, why are, do you have no dignity in your the job that you're doing? Does it feel good yeah. to be used as like a brainless fucking tool, <laughs> yeah. um, like you are being right now? Like, why are you just? Why have you like bit the hook yeah. um, without one critical reflection yeah. as to um, and and the interview over? They're just they were so insulted. I'm like, you're this. You're doing the their job for them. Yeah. They want you to do this. They and, were taking uh, these leaks from an administration, many of whose ministers were in jail or being <laughs> prosecuted for corruption. Yeah. And I mean, like, all of a sudden there's this corruption, and then we all have to report on nothing but corruption. But this has been a, like, this is a long, this is a long, like, this has been its colonial function from day one. Yeah. And it's not only in the media, it's other forms of representation, right. whether it's literature, or the movies, yeah. or anthropology, like all the stuff that Edward Said talks about in, mm-hmm. in, in uh, Orientalism, like there's a whole kind of archive of discourses and forms of representation that have served implicitly or explicitly to justify our dispossession and our subordination. Uh, the media is just one particularly powerful tool that, that does that in the present. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, yeah. No, that's... Uh, it, it's... I'm 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 really interested in in your answer to that because you know I I wonder like should we be going in and writing in the comments sections and trying to get op-eds and and constantly like trying to be in all these spaces because I've argued for that in the past but then I also think you know working and thinking much longer term uh and in a context of scarce resources yeah. on our side uh yeah, no, I think, like, like I don't know, more is another example. Like, it's not a matter of, like, we didn't we didn't back out of those spaces. Yeah. We tried to get um, yeah. the word out by any means necessary. And you saw a proliferation of beautiful grassroots yeah. analysis and yeah. 
Um, sometimes they would make it to the Globe and Mail, but most of all it was, it was happening yeah. uh, in spaces that are less prone to interpolation than, yeah. than these very powerful sort of corporate spaces. Yeah. Um, so it was in the alternate media, through arts yeah. and activism and teach-ins and all these sorts of things that we kind of, we waged war on these representations that have legitimized our, uh, our colonization. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, I talk to people from the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty sometimes, and they're always also being demonized in the media, but then they talk about how, like, surprised they are that to find supporters in the most unlikely places, and so I think it, it is definitely worth it to challenge it as, as, as often and as much as you can. Yeah, uh, we just have to kind of be... Um vigilant that the spaces that we choose, especially when they're hegemonic ones, mm -hmm. uh, don't shape us while we're trying yeah. to shape it. Yeah. I think that that's a hard, that's kind of the way in which the more subtle aspects of colonialism are, are reproduced. It's, they kind of provide legal incentives or political incentives for us to enter into negotiations yeah. that, uh, that change our understanding of ourselves and, and what justice or decolonization um, has to look like um, in our lives. Any last thoughts on that exact question, like what it looks like? For me, you know, I think of, I imagine a, a different kind of sovereignty in which, uh, you know, indigenous nations uh, have control over their territories in which uh, people who are now settlers are more like guests um, and, uh, and in which, you know, the economic model, an economic model that isn't based on extraction also has a lot of collateral benefits, right? I mean, for the planet, um, you know, for the individual worker who isn't exploited for the sake of profit. So, I think, I, I don't think there's anything like that overwhelming about imagining a, a different set of possibilities. I agree with you. Um, the one thing that I probably would kind of uh, nuance a bit is Indigenous peoples have rarely, if ever, demanded some, like, this is our jurisdiction, hmm. full stop, now Canadians will be subject to it. Um, um, because of the emphasis that we placed on on treaty, so yeah. treaty is right. like is actually a a like establishing a, a peaceful way to relate as co sovereigns right. on this territory. So it's mutually sort of beneficial to each. Yeah. Um, uh, but indigenous perspectives on the economy, environment, and their kind of legal orders. Um, or the legal orders that emerge from treaty in that sort of co-constitutive sort of sense, um, um, indigenous peoples have to be respected, but right now they're not even, like they're just ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and that respect will probably um, result in some, in some radical transformations in, in business as usual, mm -hmm. um, especially with respect to how the land is treated. So I think that that treaty in that sense isn't 
Because it gets used as a scare tactic that, yeah. oh, now we're all going to be subject to indigenous people's laws. Yeah. And I'm like, no, um, treaty means that we will all create um, the laws and the terms on which we're going to relate to each other and how we're going to relate to the land in perpetuity. I, I appreciate that. Because, I mean, it does, it's analogous to feminism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a scare tactic of, you know, yeah. if, if women do to us what we've been doing to them, it's going to be awful. <laughs> um, but in fact, the demand is to co-create yeah. the world as equals. Yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, that's right. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's what I would consider as, as when we talk about decolonization, that's exactly uh, what we're talking about. The one thing I would add is like the land um, from uh, many indigenous people's perspectives are, are part of that, that as an agent in its own right that we have mm -hmm. to consider in, in kind of the, the founding of something different. Yeah, yeah, you don't or want the to building be of something different. Anthropocentric, we share the world with a great many other yeah. life uh, living beings and, and societies. Yeah. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation.